Maxwell. P-U-X World. P-U-X World. P-U-X World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about voice. Without further ado, welcome to the show. All right. There we are. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and Nicola, welcome. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you along. And uh, we were we we I was going to say we were expecting Dustin. There has been a slight scheduling issue on on my side. Uh, these podcasts are coming thick and fast, uh, <laughs> and so. And so Dustin's unable to make it, but but nevertheless, we are very much glad to have you here and, and excited to dive into the ins and outs of Poly AI, pick your brains a little bit around your experience. You've been doing this stuff for quite a while, haven't you? The the whole kind of yeah. voice thing is something that's, that's uh, you've been yeah, doing for we, quite a while. We, we live and breathe voice. Yeah. Um, nice, nice. So uh, it's, it's uh, you have a, a decent history we'll get into we'll get into some of that and and uh you know we can we can discuss your history i know you spent some time at apple you've got you know well educated in this kind of space um and now with poly ai doing some really interesting stuff and so we'll we'll kind of we'll definitely get we'll definitely get into all of that but for people who may not be aware of of either yourself or poly ai do you want to kind of just introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about about you and about about what you're up to with poly ai Absolutely, absolutely. So Polyag is a London-based conversational AI company, and we build enterprise-grade voice assistants that are capable of providing superhuman customer experience and customer service. Um, about me, um, I, huh, well, well, not that, not that much of a long story. <laughs> I got you into the aware of when my PhD supervisor, Steve Young, convinced me not to go into investment banking and instead directed me at a guy called Blaze Thompson, who was starting a company called Vocal IQ. And Vocal IQ was another Cambridge spin-up like Poly AI, just, you know, five, six years ago. And um, at the time, we were building the world's first self-learning um, dialogue API. And it was, it was a different time, right? The consumer habits around voice and using voice assistance have not yet formed, at least not to the same extent. You had a very simple version of Siri. There was no Alexa, no Google Assistant. And, you know, we worked with different automotive companies, ended up acquired by Apple to make Siri a bit more conversational. And um, after a few years there, I left and started Poly AI with two incredible guys who were part of my PhD cohort, um, Eddie Sue and Sean Wen. And both of them are Taiwanese prodigies, went to school together, came to Cambridge. And between the three of us, we did a lot of work on putting the latest generation of deep learning into conversational AI, creating systems for robust data-driven language understanding, dialogue management, um, natural language generation. And, you know, when we started Poly AI, we were really focused on kind of like bringing this kind of like new paradigm and the capabilities into, um, you know, a framework and a company that would provide incredible, you know, as we say, superhuman customer experiences for enterprises because they actually stand to gain a lot from deploying this kind of technology but are stuck in um, you know, you could call it Stone Age technology. It's actually kind of like from the late 90s, early early 90s, where, you know, you've got IVRs, some simple voice IVRs, but we're still really far from having um, robust, natural voice experiences that are fully automated and feel good, if not better, than a conversation with a very good human 
human agents. So, you know, we're, we're passionate about it. We build really good voice assistants. We want to see them everywhere. We want to unlock human potential. And, uh, you know, all of those agents that are stuck in call centers doing simple tasks, we want to move them over to the more complex ones where they can provide a lot more value. And we want to make sure that where technology can work well, and it can work well for a lot of simple and even some very complex transactions, we want to put in things that are, um, you know, even better than humans that can work better, faster, day and night, pick up immediately, understand any language, colloquial language, different dialects, um, understand my last name, which is something that say very few, very few people, well, other than you are able uh, to Berkshire. pronounce. I, I, I told you, my education in watching football put, comes off every now and then. No, it's incredible. <laughs> I am, I'm so in shock. It's uh, the, per, the perfect show, the perfect show. It's, uh, <laughs> so anyways, yeah, that's my, you know, short propaganda spiel about me and kind of like Polly AI, but uh, really excited to be on the podcast, talk about voice, talk about these technologies. It's all we do. We're really passionate about them. And I think we have a lot to say. Cool. That sounds good. That sounds really good. So Vocal IQ, when was Vocal IQ acquired by Apple, did you say? 2015. 2015. Okay. And and I don't know what, what 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 extent you can kind of speak on this, but Apple tend to acquire companies here and there. So obviously Vocal IQ was one of them. They acquired Voices uh, probably just after uh, you might have left there. And and they often acquire uh, Polestring, another one that was probably around about a similar time, maybe it was a bit after. Um, so they always acquire these companies, but the the kind of question I always have is what happens to it? So for Polestring, my theory the my theory was that they would use it into the first theory was that they would use it to to create design tools for developers that would allow them to build on top mm-hmm. of Siri. That didn't transpire. So then I was thinking, well it might be internal tools that makes the internal teams able to spin up ideas quicker. Uh, mm-hmm. don't know whether that's the case or not. Um, with uh, voices I thought well voices have got technology that is really sophisticated as far as natural language understanding mm-hmm. is concerned in retail very good at finding you items and products and, and all that kind of stuff and so maybe that's being used to enhance Siri's knowledge as far as product search is concerned but you never really know and so it'd be interesting from from your perspective if this isn't part of your kind of like do not speak about this part of your contract whether you have any you know from from the vocal iq side like where where did it end up in the end I think Vocal IQ has been really, really impactful, but, you know, as you point out, I can't really go into a lot of detail. But mm. what, I, what I can say is that, you know, Apple is one of the most prolific acquirers, and it's an incredible, you know, product-focused company, right? Um, if you think about voice assistants, right, and I think, you know, everything you said are, you know, all of those individual assumptions are really, really good. However, when you think about having a direct impact on a system as you know, complex and, you know, mature as Siri, it's actually no simple feat to make an impact or to kind of like delineate where something else um, has been added to augment the functionality. I think that, you know, um, most of those acquisitions have been probably successes. I can't possibly comment, but uh, it's, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you think about just kind of like, you know, putting people towards improving those things there, I like to think of the large voice assistants, you know, like Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant, a bit like aircraft. They're a bit like aircraft carriers, right? They're there to project power. They're there in case, you know, the whole world develops in that direction. And we're slowly seeing that it is, right? Like the consumer habits around 
first, um, you know, voice assistants on on mobile phones, but later with smart speakers, they really ramped up. And uh, consumers are ready to interact with this technology. You know, one in three homes, not more, at this point have an Alexa or a Google Home or another one of these smart speakers. And uh, you know, when you think about kind of like adding something to that aircraft carrier and you know how it's going to impact its performance, it will, and it impacts in many ways. There are a lot of good people who maybe find a different use, um, you know, or a different. Uh, thing you know, different problem to work on there where they can have higher ROI. But um, yeah, I can't really go into much more detail. But yeah, I didn't think so. I thought I'd try my luck anyway. But uh, you never know. Uh, so you spoke there about so so. Well, I'll, I'll get onto that question in a minute. Actually, so you were at Apple for a while, and then you went and and created Poly AI. What was it specifically that kind of took you in that direction? What was it either that you were noticing wasn't working, either not necessarily Apple, but broadly speaking in voice technology? What was it that you thought wasn't quite right? And what problem did you think you could solve by by creating Poly AI? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, that's a good question. I think that, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with Apple. I think the challenge of creating a voice assistant that will interact with people through any of these mediums, right? Be it a mobile phone or a smart speaker. It's a different thing. It's a different product. That product has many use cases. Uh, the definition of quality and whether it's good is very different to different people. It's unclear what they need to do. What's clear though, is that the ROI has been tremendously negative, but we're kind of like, you know, borrowing from the future and investing, right? Because if, um, you know, say Amazon, charged enough to have positive ROI on every, you know, Echo Dot and whatnot, when you aggregate over the fact that there are 15,000 people working at Alexa, you actually, as a technologist and as someone who worked on this before, it was as huge and as popular as it is today, you can't help but think that we've not achieved that much when, you know, like the few top scenarios that you do with any of these kind of like sets of technologies is playing music, you know, setting alarms and timers, asking a few questions when playing board games, uh, you know, navigation, um, maybe texting, stuff like that. But, you know, overall, it's really not that overwhelming. There was a hope that, you know, this would be the next thing after mobile. Um, not really. It's kind of growing. It's growing at the rate that, say, laptops grew um, in the 90s, and they grew, right? And compound interest is, is miraculous. And at the end, you know, we're, we're all sitting here with a laptop. But um, it's definitely not exploded in the way that, say, the iPhone did, even though I think many of these companies hoped that it would. And now you hear these very articulate narratives around, like, is it going to be the new gateway to shopping? Is it going to be, um, you know, is it really going to materialize when we have AR and VR? Likely. Those are all things that will build into it. It's not yet clear where, how, and what. Now, you know, when you condition for the fact that I care about this technology, my co-founders do our whole senior research team, you know, we were all brought up by a guy called Steve Young. Steve is a legendary Cambridge professor, a polymath, uh, you know, one of a kind. The guy had worked on speech recognition for years, was the leading person pushing hidden Markov models, which were the one and only way you did speech recognition until deep learning, um, you know, uh, got in and really, you know, the, the, as a method, they're not much worse than deep learning still. And uh, they were more kind of like data efficient method um, previously. Um, 
you know, Steve was the pro vice chancellor of Cambridge. He sold three companies, one to Google, one to Microsoft, one to Apple. And he, you know, assembled this team that since 2006 worked on building dialogue systems, right? And if you kind of like harken back to 2006, speech recognition error rates are at 20, 30%. It is impossible to imagine that you could have a sophisticated conversation with that system. But what Steve started developing is a formalism that, you know, models uh, these errors and finds ways to recover, to ask questions, to disambiguate, to really bring context into the understanding bit so that you're able to really elevate that level of performance. And that's something we're really good at. Um, you know, I did a PhD on that, the problem school dialogue state tracking, a few other people in the company did, and you know, there are similar problems later in the conversational pipeline, like dialogue management, deciding what to say, depending on both the uncertainty of what the user might have meant and the shape of the world, say what's available in a shop inventory or, you know, in a reservation book and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you, when you think about like what has been built and where you can do good science to make sure that you make rapid progress, the most kind of like isolated problem that as good scientists we decided to focus on is customer service. A few reasons. There's a lot of data. There's a genuine, genuine uh, consumer need, right? And like an enterprise need to kind of like handle all of these goals. Um, and interestingly, I like to say back at the time of book like you, you can go into a large enterprise, speak to the people in charge of customer experience, the people in charge of the bottom line, uh, to the CIOs, and they'll have a really, you know, in-depth conversation with you about the art of the possible. And if you had done this before, you know, every other home had an Alexa, they would have laughed you out of the room, right? <laughs> and frankly so, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a ridiculous idea. But where we've had a lot of success over the past few years is really in pushing out systems that are incredible. They're like some of the most sophisticated, you know, like top 10 voice assistants ever deployed. Narrow domain, right? They're not there to talk to you about anything. They definitely cannot talk to you about the meaning of life. But, you know, you want to book a table and you really, or, you know, you want to uh, schedule a piano lesson and it's on a Tuesday or Thursday evening, but not after 10. Like, we can do that kind of stuff. And that's really complex stuff. Uh, but the, the more important thing about doing customer service is you're actually then able to uh, evaluate how well the system is working, right? And how happy people are interacting with that system. So there are two levels. Like, do they get the job done? And then the second problem is, like, how frustrated does it leave users compared to... Uh, speaking to a really good human. And, you know, we choose our battles, but um, we're able to outperform the best human agents quite often. And if we think we can't, we probably won't really go into that application just yet until we're ready. How do you mean by outperform humans? In what, in what respect would it outperform a human? Yeah, so that's a complex question, right? On the, on the one hand, you know, just reaching the kind of like key characteristics of a support agent that are human and then make them popular are things like, say, the quality of voice, the speed of response, the quality of the understanding, knowing what the user means, right? And those are all engineering and scientific constraints where in these more narrow applications, we're able to do really well, right? Now, when you think about outperforming humans, you know, if I say that my last name is Markshich, 
like that doesn't work with you know english speakers uh or not you right <laughs> and um if i quickly say that my postcode is ecym5py was that uh, mike or november for the fourth character got it turns out that it's actually and it's no surprise right it was just a matter of time but now we're able to outperform say humans when it comes to um natural language oh, sorry say often american to understanding colloquialisms to understanding really complex questions and the, the other thing to really take into account and yeah, this sounds like i'm just beating the baseline <laughs> but there are very few call centers that are staffed so well with people who have been there for long enough to know all the procedures right so if you've got a very complex product where there are 200 questions about it like an ai can just access them all and answer those questions even if the answer just changed because you know it's uh they're the board right they have all the answers they're connected to a central system and the answer changes they know immediately right they outperform people because they pick up straight away they don't get tired they speak whatever language you need them to right you switch language sentence to sentence and uh, the agent can change the uh, can change the language they speak so there are many parameters in which we as humans are flawed right like we speak up to a few languages uh, you know, we don't know all the answers. We will struggle to understand postcodes, um, and in many of these, with many of these problems, we can actually have, you know, somewhat transactional but really incredibly functional voice assistants take the place of those human agents. Mm, interesting. You 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 mentioned you've mentioned it a couple of times so far. Sophisticated conversations. Um, and then you kind of said, you use that example of booking a table, book me a table for Friday at eight, whatever it might be. Um, not, not vegan, but less than 14, you know, whatever it might be like. So is that what you would classify as a sophisticated conversation? Those kind of compound queries or is, is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's part of it, right? If you get someone, I you know, I, I've heard examples of calls that are system to where someone would say, uh, let's say that's you know less of a digital native and maybe someone who's not as versed in speaking with these assistants and you know you can hear sentences like three to four people um, I'm hoping for I think yeah no, not three to four right like that's an adversarial example if there ever was one right <laughs> so kind of like understanding those things that's that's quite sophisticated on a technical level right um, then yeah so compound things but more importantly like the long sentences questions that are contextual that depend on what has already been answered right and like really being able to just kind of like you know respond to a question with the full context of the conversation right so if someone you know had previously specified that they want um you know a table outside and they ask you about disabled access your venue might actually have um, you know, say a disabled toilet that's outside, right? Or maybe very close to the exit. And you should provide that information rather than the more generic, like, you know, we've got disabled access around, um, mm. around the restaurant. Mm. How, how um, well, maybe get into some, some of the details around the poly AI technology, but how kind of do you approach that level of management? So in the past, when, when I've worked on things, it's a lot of... 
you know, saving everything that the, that the user responds and then later on in the conversation doing a bunch of checks to see what they've responded to previously and then a lot of if this then that kind of things to point yeah. them in the right direction of the conversation. Is that the way you approach it? And if so, how 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 does the, the technology that you have make that process kind of easier or, or do you approach that in a, in a totally different way? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, if there's a complex process, there's really no like silver bullet that will absorb that process and turn it into something that the agent just inherently knows, right? Now, but if you think about, um, you know, if you think about the, the, the process of just encoding it all, right now with our clients, we work as a service, right? So we have a team that will actually go and understand how what those processes look like and we'll build stuff that is, you know, at least 80% uh, very, you know, easy to represent visually so that our clients can go and edit that thing. So it's a, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a Salesforce, oh, like Salesforce uh, style delivery model where, you know, we'll configure it or you will build the first version and then you can go and maintain it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, there's a trade-off, right? When you look at the, the simple DIY tools, like Dialogflow, Microsoft Black Framework, Flex, um, you can build demos quickly, but it's really hard to even capture those complexities, even if you're willing to put in the work because it just kind of like blows up and blows up. And at the end, it looks like, you know, the, a very complex map on the subway. And um, it gets really hard to maintain, to update, to even see what's going on. Very, very easy to break as well, isn't it? Change one thing, the whole thing will come crashing down. Yeah, absolutely. It's house of cards. And, uh, you know, if you... If you build it that way, you know, you, you continue to kind of like throw bodies at the problem, it gets ever more complex. Um, you're kind of like waging war of complexity, and at some point you're going to give up because the cost of just maintenance is really high. And what we are trying to do is just like expose um, 80% of the things in a way that's a lot neater, right? Where, you know, kind of like the, the some of the kind of like um, Kind of like processes are encoded as data flow, right? Where it's kind of like, you know, this will trigger if it, this, 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 correct. Some things are global rules. And then for some other things, there is your traditional control flow, like if this and that. But, you know, we try to kind of like in the initial build, create something that is a lot more robust to that exponential explosion of the number of states. Mm. Um, we, we plan to release um, this platform to all of our clients towards the end of Q2, early Q3. It's kind of like early trial, trials right now. It's, it's a problem, an engineering and a scientific problem. It's actually more of an engineering problem mm. that's not yet been solved, right? Mm. And we know way too much about the problem to just be another, you know, hey, we built a graphical tool, you should build it because it's better because lines are easier to draw. Like, that's stupid, right? Mm. We, we know way too much about it to be that naive. So we're trying to take, you know, we've taken a long time to actually say, okay, there will be a platform at all, right? Mm. Because if you look at the historic, you know, approach to voice, and voice is very different from text, you know, like, um, I don't know, I don't know, like for your audience, how interesting it is for me to kind of like drill into that a bit mm. more, but, you know, I think we're seeing chatbot building tools now that are approaching a shape where they're good enough or an enterprise that's willing to throw a hundred bodies in the problem, mm-hmm. build a chatbot that's okay. But voice is just a lot more complex because A, it doesn't work that well. B, you need to kind of, oh, I see one of the comments. I don't know why people assist in modeling conversations with flowcharts. Well, they do that because the appeal of uh, 
of it is that you know everyone in today's world of like software platforms wants to win overnight. So if only I build a slightly better looking flowchart than everyone else, then the whole entire world will come and build amazing dialogue systems, better than Siri, better than Alexa, better than anything, because my UI is so good. I mean, that's like, just like, okay. Like, if you think that, go ahead and build another, another flowchart. All we need is, you know, one color flip to make the user experience a bit better. And, you know, everyone will build a Siri in their, in their, in their backyard. Um, but yeah, I agree, I agree with the sentiment. Uh, like in a way, like for a very simple kind um, of like system where you want to build a demo and go through like three sentences where you behave exactly the way you expected yourself to behave. Yeah, you can do that without, right? Mm -hmm. You want to build something that's robust that you can kind of like give a heavy beating or have someone come in without knowing how to interact with it and survive robustly. Well, that, that's not how it's going to how it's going to work, right? Mm -hmm. And whether we can even create something I mean, the, the, the analogy I, I like to think about here is think about the web in the 90s, right? We started, we had maybe one website, then we maybe had another. And um, over time, we built a few good websites. We saw what the limitations vis-a-vis -vis technology were. So we built better technology. You know, one day we had HTML5 and whatnot. Um, many other things. I don't know enough about the web to, to give a, you know, an analogy that's kind of like interesting enough. But, um, you know, one day we built Squarespace, right? Before that, we had WordPress, right? We had things that mm -hmm. could fit out relatively generic versions of websites that were pretty good, right? For a certain purpose. And, um, you know, you think about the shape of voice assistants, right? If you remove chatbots, and this largely applies to chatbots as well. It's like, how many really good voice assistants are there? How many people swear by Alexa or Siri? Mm. Well, very few still. Despite the fact that, you know, if you do a bit of a back of the envelope calculation, Amazon probably spends $5 billion a year on Alexa. It's mm. still not something that is incredible, right? Like this thing, this thing was incredible like day one. It was amazing, right? And then I think, you know, people are hooked and they want to have like an app store and they want to have people building because that's how the ecosystem explodes. It's not happened. It's likely not going to happen that fast, right? Mm -hmm. So for us as practitioners in the field, for whom it's not negotiable whether we're going to do this or not, this is our life we care about and we'll be doing it for decades to come, right? Um, the only way to do it then is to go and attack the same market that companies like say Nuance and Ipsoft uh, were addressing previously. But if you think about those companies, they work only with the largest of companies because their ability to handle the start of the conversation, like, hey, what's your call about? Who do I need to reach you to? Maybe I can like learn a bit about you before I pass you on. Like, that's not a large part of the conversation. And if you're only saving that small amount of time, well, then you better go after only the largest of call centers. Now, mm. at this point, you know, like we're standing on a lot of work that happened over the past five to 10 years. We're able to build things that are a lot better a lot and uh, you know we can go a lot deeper in that conversation we can build experiences that are actually not frustrating at all right? mm. and uh, another big piece of our technology and this is also steve's legacy is just like modeling the confidence of the system and knowing when you know we're not doing that well if we're not doing that well we should just stop right because that's kind of like we're very cowardly around how fast we we have enough because you know for this thing to be really adopted it should just be a net positive 
over an existing call center, right? It's not a cost cutting play. Like, you know, with one of our clients, um, we're increasing revenue by around four to 6% because we're adding so much elastic, flexible, superhuman labor that, you know, like we're adding so much flexible workforce in times that matter that it has a really positive ROI. And having, you know, a human workforce at the ready of a comparable size and capabilities would be incredibly um, costly and would have a negative ROI. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with other clients, you know, we're, we're, we're doing marketing related things where, you know, we're upping sales for things that uh, would not otherwise be, again, possible with a human estate, maybe because those calls need to happen in a certain time period, right? So there are a lot of places where these systems can do a lot, but, you know, you need to be pretty deliberate around how you're playing. Interesting. So there was an awful lot in that. So one, there's three different ways that we go about this. <laughs> one, I think it would be nice to, to continue that tooling discussion because I think you, your eyes lit up when you were talking about that. So I think I've got another question about that. Um, the the You mentioned stuff around the app ecosystem. Everyone wants it to be the next app ecosystem and that's not going to happen and it hasn't happened. So that's another area that would be nice. And then you finished up talking about modeling system confidence so and, and more robust conversation management. Uh, so those three areas I think uh, are useful. But if we go back to the tooling side of um, side of things, you, you have this technology and we'll get into a little bit more detail about that in a moment. So you, you have this technology, you're building experiences for clients, you're targeting enterprise, you're targeting kind of like contact centers, customer service. Um, but now you have aspirations to make it a, a, a more kind of accessible piece of, a piece of kit, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've, I've used and tested a lot of different versions of either design tools or publishing tools or platforms, whatever you want to call it, from Dialogflow, ES and Watson, which are a little bit more kind of like bare bones, to your likes of CX, uh, CX rather, which is a little bit more graphical, to your likes of, um, you know, Cognigy or Boost, which is graphical with a little bit more, more kind of power or flexibility around the input in terms of the ASR and NLU and stuff. Um and then you've got things that are purely just design tools like VoiceFlow and BotMock and Bot Society and yeah. things like that. So you've got this kind of a bridge between, and then you've got other tools actually um, that exist. VoiceXP have got one. I know TalkVia are uh, releasing one soon, which is a little bit more kind of like, it's almost like form filling, Voiceify, very similar, form filling. You fill in a few fields, you add some images and some multimodal chip suggestions, whatever it might be, and then it creates a conversation from it. So the way I would kind of, if I was to describe the tooling landscape, you've got on one side, you've got code, write it all yourself. Then above that, you've got something similar to Watson Dialogflow ES, where there's at least some web-based interface you can input stuff into, but it's still still some code sitting behind it for the for the logic and stuff like that. Then you've got something that is uh, probably more akin to, let's say, Dialogflow CX, where you've still got your like, and then maybe you put Cognigy in that group, which is getting to a little bit more drag and drop sort of stuff. You can start putting those graphical interfaces together. Then you've got something a bit more like voice flow, which is similar kind of principle, but less control over the language model and all of the complexities that sit behind it. And then you've got the kind of form filling side of the tooling. Where within that scale do you think poly AI will sit? Is it in between code and graphical user interface or like 
How do you get around the graphical user interface problem, I suppose, is the question. Where do you think it's it, the perfect tooling sits within that kind of scale? It's really, it's really, really complex, right? You can't, you can't give up on the coding element fully because we don't yet possess enough good abstractions to kind of like just create a fully you know, graphical thing. Um, you know, I'd be betraying a lot of the things that we plan to, um, you know, release uh, later this year if I, if I went into a lot of detail. Mm. But, you know, I think that you need to have like a certain level of graphical design that lets people continue to maintain the system after it's built. Um, it's also like undeniable that if you just do that, you're not going to be able to model the right kind of complexity. What we believe in right now and what we do is, you know, uh, as I mentioned, a Salesforce style delivery model where we build the first version. Because mm -hmm. frankly, we can build and we do build and deploy systems that are a hundred times better than any of the platforms that you just listed because they're not good enough, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example of why they're not good enough. Um, Sorry, I'm streaming. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that, like, if you think about just say feature recognition, which is an essential thing for voice, like a lot of the companies you mentioned, they're really still all about chat, right? In fact, I'd say that there is no voice first developer tool or platform uh, for deploying voice assistance for customer service or even for deploying voice assistance. They're trying to straddle both things, but because of just the interest and the simplicity of them chat, they end up doing chat. And they're focused on chat and they think about chat first. Um, we think about voice, right? And for voice, the actual reason why I say a company like Nuance is still very powerful is that they configure speech recognition for your application enough so that, you know, in the end, what they can deploy, even though their, say, generic speech recognizer is not better than Google's, mm. they're still able to actually do the homework around making sure that speech recognition has been tailored to your application. And hence, it's very good. And hence, they still have like a lot of clients, especially at the top end. Um, but, um, you know, when you look at all of these platforms, they're just trying to simplify it and, you know, if you think about the teams working on these things in a Google or, you know, say Amazon, et cetera, a lot of the top researchers, people who actually have a lot to say and have done a lot of work on creating the latest generation of dialogue systems, they don't really want to work on this problem because it's a, it's a different problem. It's a tooling problem, right? And it's a, like, we shouldn't pretend it's easy, right? Finding the right abstractions so that you expose this technology to an exponentially larger audience, it won't come overnight. So you can kind of like, you know, try to build Wix.com back in 95 over and over and over again. Maybe you'll get there, maybe you won't. Or you build really good websites that you gradually make more configurable and then you have a few templates. And you know, like they, they'll do some things, we'll do some things, but we'll release our voice platform, um, you know, kind of like that late Q2, early Q3 this year, and then maybe we can have this conversation again and, you know, probably get someone who is still very technical, unlike me, to kind of like talk you through it, perhaps our VP product, Vincent, or our CTO, Sean. Hmm. That sounds good. That's no, a good approach. I, I like that incremental f approach because I think that 
with everything, not just in conversation and lie, ev- everything in general these days is rushed, isn't it? No one's got any time. No, everyone wants to rush things to market. Everyone wants to kind of put an MVP out or democratize things quickly. I mean, we use we use this maturation scale for trying to determine where organizations sit in their kind of transformation journey as far as conversational AI is concerned, from like a, a embryonic stage where you're thinking about it to crawl in, to walk in, to run in. And, and then there's a part of it which is relay, which is where once you've established yourself a centre of excellence and you've established processes and standards and you've got a consistent way of delivering quality and you've defined that quality, then you might be in a position to start thinking about democratising, start mm-hmm. thinking about devolving, but you really need to have your house well and truly in order before you do that. Whereas a lot of these tools are already thinking about democratising. I'm not saying democratising is a bad idea because you've got a lot of talented designers, a lot of talented writers who can create some really impressive stuff. So I don't think that's... I don't think it's democratization that's the issue. It's more of a case of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's essentially, I don't know whether it's a rush, rushing, basically, to try and democratize before maybe some of the fundamentals have been figured out. I don't know if that's a more accurate way of describing mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think there's just like, you know, there are a lot of good ambitious people that just want to win, right? And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that this is a battle that will be played out over the next two years. I think there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, there's also just like that consumer adoption that is happening in, in kind of like, you know, the you know, households where people speak to Alexa, et cetera. You know, there's still a lot that we need to prove before people kind of like go into um and a conversation with a voice agent and expect that it can do all of these things right and um people just need to see more success stories there and you know we have a few we'll have a lot more and um you know we're we're, we're in it to win it as well but i think that it's going to be a marathon and not a spring it's mm. a good way of good way of describing it um you mentioned there around the, the whole superhuman element of this and mm-hmm. creating robust conversations. But by that, do you mean, because you mentioned that when you were talking about the graphical user interfaces and how mm-hmm. it's easier to kind of break them as such. When you say robust conversations or superhuman conversations, are you talking about the getting rid of those limitations that some of the graphical tools might have, whereby once you're in a certain part of that tree, you're pretty much stuck and you have to say what the system expects you to say to get out of it. Are you talking about more fluid conversations or how could you describe that robust? Absolutely. Right. Like if I'm talking to you and like, you're helping me book, let's go with restaurant reservations. Cause they're like the, you know, ultimate kind of like hello world thing when it comes to dialect systems. Right. It's like, I'm like, Kane, I'd love to come in tonight. And I'm coming in with my fiance and uh, I'm vegetarian. Like, well, actually, no, never mind. Actually, we're coming in with two more people. And then like, oh, no, sorry, did I say tonight? I'm in, I'm in tomorrow, right? And like, you do that with any system built with those flowcharts. It's possible that it works, but someone killed themselves to support it. And they probably did it after it failed a few times. And there's like this phone or like a visualization hanging here and hanging there and hanging there. None of it is reusable. It doesn't react well to mistakes or whatever. And then there's the more kind of like, you know, when I say robust, I also mean like, we all talk differently, right? If you're like, you know, chipmunk Serbian guy like me, who just talks fast, slurs words, uh, non-native accent. And, you know, maybe I say like free people, right? And, uh, 
how many people? Three people. How many people? Three people. It's like, it's not working. Mix it up. Right? Like, mix it up on a design level, right? But also, like, look deeper into that, like, speech recommends your output. It's like, well, it may be three. He's repeating it. It's probably not what I'm seeing there. Right. And that's like just something that's inbuilt into our system. And like the, the automatic ability to use context is incredibly important, right? Because it stops, you know, it's like, um, you know, an autopilot element for, you know, driving on a straight road is a, is a bad example, but it's just like, you know, it lets you not do that amount of time crafting. And, you know, we're culling it by a factor of two with each of these things that we add. And if you don't do that, it's not even a matter of handcrafting. Like this just doesn't work with things like that. But you can't do it. There's nothing you can do. Mm. Right? And like if you don't if you, if you don't do it, then you're just losing a lot of people. Mm. Interesting. How much? Because um, if you look at a live chat, uh, mm. or you look at a live call, you do get a lot of that kind of long-winded explanations of things like when you get put through to someone on the phone and they say, how can I help you? And I, I catch myself doing it now because I've worked with this kind of technology. I catch myself when I make this phone call. So I'll phone up something like Virgin and I'll complain about my internet and the, the customer service agent will say, how, how can I help? And I'll start at the very beginning. I'll say, well, last Tuesday I was trying to log on to work and I tried to got my emails and for some reason I couldn't get it into my emails and I was wondering why. So I tried the BBC website, that wasn't working. And then my wife was complaining about Netflix not working and so I went in and I had to reset the router so I tried resetting the router and that didn't work and so I've turned off the TV turned it back on again unplugged it and, and all that kind of stuff and still the internet's not working I've been four and a half hours now I've reset the router two times and unplugged that and plugged that back in again and it's still not working so what do I do now and so, and so all of that basically all I'm saying is my router's not working <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't name the client but it is one of the largest European telcos and that is exactly what we do with them um it's a bit of a different conversation to say that, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, quintessential, say, appointment making. Uh, then we also do with some clients. Um, if you think about rural troubleshooting, someone's calling it and pissed, right? Like, they do not want, like, yeah, you'll give the full context to a human because you want them to know all of these things. And if it's an automated thing, A, you're going to flip. You're like, what? I don't know why. So to buy back time, to buy a bit of your goodwill, like, I better sound really professional and like, I really know what I'm doing. Because like, say a very good agent might say like, okay, hold on. Like, did you restart your order? Okay, no, yeah, okay. Which router do you have, do you know? And you're like, how the hell do I know? Right? Well, you probably know, but like most people don't, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, like, you know, does it have a gray strip across the top? Does it have a plastic band on the bottom? Okay, well, that's that kind of router, right? So that's what our systems do. They're very assertive. And they kind of like very quickly just do very interactive and robust form filling, right? But not form filling of the kind of like, tell me, tell me, tell me, okay, now you go to the agent. It's like the, you know, there's like an agent-led conversation and there's a user-led conversation. Typically, um, you know, in terms of pushing the limits of technology, user-led conversations are difficult because God knows what you're going to say, right? But if you think about, um, surviving these kind of like low oxygen settings, like low goodwill settings where people are really frustrated, you have to provide value quickly. You can't talk for a long time. And you know, people today, when they think about technology and you know, their words, like really, really bad words, like deflection, containment, mm -hmm. right? It literally sounds like you're building, 
you know, kind of like uh, tower defense game where you're you know, defending against the creeps coming in. And, you know, we don't like when people think about consumers that way. We think that we can help them a lot and we can just like help the call center as well by kind of like helping them talk to each other more efficiently or not at all if we can help with the problem, right? So you take control of that conversation. Snappy, short sentences, very directive, very guided. Don't baby people, don't repeat them, don't thank them for their call five times for baby's sake, right? <laughs> and it's like these systems and the way that people build it is just obnoxiously bad, right? It's like, you know, they, they have very long sentences, repetitions, and they, you know, like long introductions, explanations of the fact that it's an automated agent. Like, by calling, and it's an automated agent that's better than a human, I don't want to hear a three sentence disclaimer that I am an automated agent, but we really care about you. <laughs> like, just make sure that this automated agent, if you're going to, you know, make me suffer with it, make sure that it shows me it's worth really, really quickly or get it out of the way. And that's what we did, right? Mm. It's not about like deflection and containment. Because frankly, we don't like to engage in deals where it's just about cost cutting. Obviously, you could do it. You could deteriorate the experience further and make it dirt cheap for companies. And we've spoken to a lot of people, uh, a lot of enterprises to do just this. And we tend to find that we can't do a lot for them because at the end of the day, AI is still a bit of a luxury product. If you want to melt down the experience, you build a DTMF IVR system, right? And you let people find their way through the labyrinth. If it takes 10 minutes, well, it's their 10 minutes, not yours, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, we don't do that. Like, we really go in and work only with clients where there's kind of like mutual, a mutual understanding that we're here to improve the CSAT score by, say, 40%, which is something that we've been able to do. And sometimes it's because the agent is superhuman and it's really able to do a lot of those things well. And, you know, frankly, a lot of it is just the fact that it's there in endless quantities, always available, speaking different languages, and just alleviating a lot of the operational hurdles that uh, a call center manager has to deal with and that are, you know, the main constraint and the barrier to providing real good customer experience. Mm, interesting. What what kind of, because that's a difficult thing to get around that, because um, that is a lot of what, a lot of organizations are trying to do is because they've been overwhelmed because they're kind of run off the feet um they've got agents working from home some they might have had to furlough or what have you make redundancies because they um you know haven't been doing so great um so what one you've got companies who are trying to manage excess demand i suppose mm-hmm. so phones run off our hook so the, so the agent is then used to soak up the demand so they're not getting rid of staff they're not trying to save costs they're trying to just cater for more do do more but then you do have have those companies who are who are really trying to think about cost savings and really start trying to think about obviously the contact center is a cost center there's always things being done in that space to try and reduce costs and stuff like that and so isn't, isn't that though one of the um main drivers for people wanting this kind of technology is is to try and reduce costs we don't find that it's the main driver because purchasing decisions like you know in the like muscle hierarchy of you know buying software cost cutting is like a very sound one but it's not something that you know people like to um you know just inherently i don't think that it's the most exciting thing that people like to work on mm. right so for us really it's much more about um number one cx improvement right and that will have to do with companies that would they want better CX. They're already spending a decent amount of money 
like they're unable to spend more. Maybe they can spend a bit more, but they want to see an outsized return compared to say growing the call center or you know buying call center software, which could help as well, right? But mm -hmm. like AI is now at a point where like the, the balance of power has tilted and we're able to you know just do a lot more for parts of their customer service state. Um, and then if you if you think about just the sorry, I got distracted reading. Um, you know, when you think about the second aspect, it's uh, revenue generation, right? And uh, sometimes operational efficiencies, but more operational efficiencies along the lines of we don't have enough labor, we need like burst labor in such volumes, like say, you know, we work with hospitality groups. In fact, you know, when the lockdown finally lifts, you'll find that, you know, probably one and two large restaurant groups uh, are already users of Poly AI, right? And we help them drive really, really good returns. It's because a lot of the calls going into restaurants are missed, but the user behavior on call into book is persistent. In fact, you know, for the last 10 years, it's been 50-50 of like calling versus not calling, be it online, mobile, whatever, for making reservations. And it's stable, right? It won't go away anywhere. Like I call to book, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hardly not a digital native. Um, so with those, uh, with those clients, we're just able to give them that infinite supply of labor using AI. And that's also a piece of around, you know, around being superhuman. Hmm, that's good. How much of that do you think, we've touched on this before, how much of that do you think will just become templatized and just universally accessible in terms of like a restaurant booking? There's a very particular pattern that occurs in that in that, and it doesn't really matter necessarily what kind of restaurant you are. It's like there are certain things that you need to know. What what branch, what time, how many people, how much of those things do you think ultimately will just be repeatable and scalable and, and ultimately over time kind of, um, do I want to say commoditized? I don't know if commoditized is the right word, but maybe it is. But how, how kind of scalable do you think those things are? Um, I mean, I don't know if scalable is the right question there, right? Like, I think that those things will will be everywhere. Yeah, I think that they will be commoditized, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, we already work with so many restaurant groups that, you know, there's definitely a need. The really interesting thing that happened earlier this year is we had, um, and we have, we have a blog post about it, um, Google Duplex called one of our systems and they had a really, really awkward conversation. Interesting. Well, awkward. It was actually a pretty cool conversation, you know? Like we started, Duplex was quiet, like, hey, are you there? Duplex was quiet. Then Duplex started talking. They promptly, first our system informed Duplex that the call was being recorded. Uh, then Duplex told us that, you know, like I'm an automated service, this will, will be recorded. Like, you know, they didn't really, there was no moment of like, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right. <laughs> uh, where they kind of said like, okay, we're just going to do this with APIs because why the hell are we using this like low channel thing called human language to communicate? Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, there's just like an operational difficulty around global like communication of things, right? This could have been an API call. Like there could have been a single portal, a sky scanner like portal, you know, in America to say open table is, you know, much more dominant than anything specifically in Europe is. And, um, you know, it could have all been done with API calls, but hey, we've led to see two highly sophisticated voice assistants having a conversation about opening times in restaurants so that they can update something in Google Maps, right? <laughs> and um, I think that's gonna happen more and more and more, right? 
And uh, the same working for us here is that, you know, the empires like Google have worked to provide these assistance as, you know, kind of like, you know, helpful assistance to consumers all around, right? And they're intended to speak to humans, but there's no need for them to do that if we kind of like provide the interface on the opposite end. Um, human language is universal and like API calls are not. And like there are many, many places where we've just been unable to agree standards around, you know, what's acceptable from one place to another. Like you look at COVID and vaccination right now and, you know, are Americans going to recognize Chinese vaccines? Are, is the European Union going to recognize Russian ones? You know, they all tend to work and prevent heavy cases of COVID. But, you know, we disagree. We have our own quirks. We have our own kind of like um, problems with each other. And we always, you know, have these kind of like problems agreeing with universal interface. And I think that voice assistants are actually a really good way of dealing with that because they can actually overcome these things. Mm, mm, that's interesting. Uh, earlier on, you mentioned containment and deflection. Um, mm. And that's, uh, funnily enough, last week, uh, that's something that I posted about, which is why containment rates are the wrong things to be thinking about. Um, mm. And so I'm curious about when you are working with clients, when you're standing up these bots, how do you, you mentioned customer service or, or CSAT scores or improving customer experience. So maybe that's one metric, but what things are you using to determine whether something is successful? What metrics are you are you trying to get to 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 prove how successful an implementation has been? Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think the the one the one really really um, axialian thing is like MPS scores, CSAT scores, first call resolution, all of the context sensor metrics, right? Because in a way, like, you're providing you know, augmented additional labor for a call center, right? So you should use those same metrics, right? The second thing is like, it's akin to first call resolution. So like the resolution rate, right? Like does the AI work that you have to hand off to a human, right? Then the other useful thing just operationally is like the reduction in average handling time, right? Containment, you know, if you're, if you're using it only really to measure whether you've been able to achieve the task rather than did you keep the person on the line until they gave up? <laughs> That's the wrong measure, right? That's where containment is a really, really bad word. But um, yeah, if you're just looking at the first call resolution, well, that's that does really correlate with MPS scores and something that you know, like you should absolutely look at, even if you don't have a single, you know, AI agent in your call center. Mm. We've got a question from from Michael, um, getting into the realms of kind of. Being being proactive, I suppose I would read this as. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up because it, it, he's mentioned that his internet problem. He's got any problems with the internet, so it's quite a chunky paragraph. But essentially, the the question is: Are you able to predict why your customer is calling to create a more real time, contextualized conversation? Yes. Is that something that you do? Yes. Yes. So a few a few ways to do this, right? Um, if you actually have the information from the back end, and you know, that's like the other piece that is less of an exciting conversation when it comes to a kind of like B2B and, uh, and customer service automation, but you know, it's about the integrations, right? If I can tell that there's an outage in your area or something like that, the agent should go and say, hi, Kane, uh, thanks for your call. Just wanted to let you know where the tech, works. we expect to have problems in your area around 8 p.m. Are you calling about slow internet? Yeah, we can do that if we have that information. Mm. If not, then you know it's it's really about like how much of the information we have, 
right? If we, if you say that your internet is slow, we're like, what's your postcode? Tell us your postcode. We're like, we're seeing altitudes. That's something that's probably available, even if the kind of like more kind of like direct information isn't immediately. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's exactly like, that's part of being superhuman, right? Like do these things to not kind of like get someone to go through a long set of, you know, questions around have you restarted your router? Have you, you know, done this? Have you done that? Are you sure that there aren't people connected to your internet? Blah blah blah. So yeah, like what we tend to do in those calls is just like, well, tell us what have you done so far, right? And if they like say restarted the router, we're not going to get them to do that. If they've done other things, we we're not going to go through those steps and just kind of like avoids that roboticness. And you sadly often experience even when you call a real call center because. A lot of, well, like, you know, the few people on the on the AI side think about this, but like the churn in, in call centers can be huge. Like I've been to call centers where churn is 200% of you, mm. right? And you can imagine how hard it is to train people to bring, uh, you know, a high level of training to every agent in there. So the truth is being superhuman sometimes isn't that hard because, you know, we've got 2% of the population working in customer service in the UK. In the US, in some countries, it's even higher, right? And uh, they're typically minimum wage jobs. And, uh, you know, it's um, it's hard to get people to do these jobs for a long time because, you know, in a way you're sitting there and people are shouting at you day and night for something that is really not your fault, right? So people tend to quit and they don't tend to stick in these jobs very, very often uh, or, or for a very long time. So, you know, if you can bring in like a centralized agent that has seen all of those problems that can predict that with 80% chance it's this problem. So let me try that, even though I might not have all the information I need to go there. Um, you know, that's being superhuman. That's kind of like pattern matching where a good human, well, like all humans are good, but like a well-trained human could, um, could have that kind of like intuition after some time. The automated agent can as well, but like a human who's not well trained will struggle to do this. Mm. Interesting. So that's a good narrative the superhuman thing and I think that's probably what we'll label this podcast when we actually publish it on the podcast because I think it's quite a nice it summarises most of the discussion that we've had like so you spoke about superhuman uh, being things like being able to scale the workforce and provide you know access to a speaking thing that can do things for your company when other people can't do it we've spoke about it being able to handle complex uh, dialogues and situations and understand speech where humans might not be able quite to do that. We've spoke about being able to be proactive in understanding why someone might be calling. We've spoke about being able to be consistent through over time forever rather than having the churn in the contact centres uh, that exists. And, and so is there any other qualities that define the superhuman-like capabilities uh, that, that you're working with yeah. and, and so proud of Poly AI? For sure. So with some of our clients, we're working on rollouts in multiple languages at once. So that's that's just like a very superhuman thing, right? Like you you, you, you switch to the French, Spanish, Mandarin, Russian, Serbian, boom, like here we go, right? And that's something that no human will ever be able to do as easily, right? So that's really cool. There, there, there are other aspects, like, you know, different dialects, right? Like throw in... You know, this is this is why you know a lot of people wrongly think that say um, people in the UK are racist, so they have a problem with Indian 
uh, call centers, right? The truth is, you get like the UK has like sixty-seven dialects, right? And as someone who moved to 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 the UK, like I struggled and I learned English from the age of three, right? Mm -hmm. And if you just think about like Brits are very good with each other's dialects, right? But like you you bring in even a native English speaker from from another country and they struggle, right? So like AI can actually like model every British, Australian. Um, you know, Kiwi, American, the Canadian dialect, and just like work really, really well, and even adapt and just like respond in that dialect with colloquialisms, with everything. And you know, a lot of people, you know, say when they struggle to explain something to an offshore contact center agent, it's because some subtle cultural nuance isn't getting across. And um, you know, AI will be able to do it, and like it learns from. Uh, we didn't talk much about technology, right? But like our agents are pre-trained on mountains of data. They've seen more data than any human ever will, right? So they're able to really understand language very quickly to tune to specific, very complex scenarios very quickly because they've seen people write or speak in all manner of ways. And um, yeah. Mm. Interesting. So where can, where can people, if they... Um, if, if they want to find out more about Polly, if they want to kind of speak to you about helping them out, you know, if they want to learn a bit more, what's the best way, what's the best way them, for them to do that? Our website is the, is the best way. You know, you, you can hear a lot of the kind of like product demonstrations on the website. Our blog has a wealth of information around both how we think about customer experience, customer service, about AI, and um, yeah, if you go to poly.ai or poly.com, uh, you, you can read about you can read about all that and get in touch with us, and we'll be happy to kind of help on and see if we can help. But only if you want to improve customer experience. <laughs> sounds good. That sounds good. And what about yourself? Where can people where can people reach out to you or follow you online and follow your thoughts and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, Nicola at poly.ai.com. Right. Uh, if, you, if you want to get in touch, otherwise, um, well, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, but like I. I I work a bit too hard to, to find the time to you know, share my thoughts a bit more, a bit more widely, at least for now. But uh, yeah, that's anything cool. that related, I'm all yours. Cool. That's fantastic. Uh, and next week, is it next week? I don't even know what day it is. Not next week, but the week after. Uh, we are, I'm involved, funnily enough, with Poly AI uh, and taking part in the multilingual webinar that you have going on. So if you are interested in that, do check it out. It's polyai.com forward slash multilingual dash webinar. Uh, looking forward to that. It's going to be interesting. Nicola, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely right, immense. This was fun. This was fun. I think we, um, you know, you got you got me to say a lot about the tooling and some of the thoughts. And uh, you know, I really look forward to kind of like unveiling the platform to the world. And you know, thank you for you know featuring Superhuman Album so so well. No worries. Well, give us a shout when that platform's out, and we'll maybe just jump on here and, and do it again, and we'll speak in a bit more detail about about that and about why it's different to, to other platforms and your approach. It'd be good to get into into a bit more of that detail. And also, you're on Clubhouse as well, so you said that you don't spend too much time uh, messing around with social media, but hopefully we can we can drag you into Clubhouse at some point over the next couple of weeks and, and take a discussion over there as well. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. 
Nice one. Cheers. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, tomorrow we're speaking to uh, Elan Avner of Audio Codes, and we're going to be talking about integrating your chatbots uh, or voice bots into any contact center system, which is going to be interesting. And if you don't tune in next week, next Wednesday, same time as this, we're going to be speaking to Anthony Passimard of Google Contact Center AI, all about their tooling, uh, which will be a nice a nice compare and contrast, at least in the back of my mind after this discussion. It'd be interesting to, to learn a little bit more about that and how they're approaching things as well. So so do join us for that uh, and do join us for the poly webinar as well uh, other than that thank you very much for tuning in as always uh, thank you also to Nicola and we'll see you next week